I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah tonight. We're going to go back to our study of the character of leadership, looking at the life of Nehemiah. And throughout the book of Nehemiah, we've seen time and again how he has uh, undertaken this burden placed in his heart by the Lord to oversee the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem and the things that he's helped the people work through and deal with. Leadership, in a word, is influence. The ability to influence someone else in a direction that you think is important. And Nehemiah is seeking to influence the people of Jerusalem towards this rebuilding of the wall and, and bringing, restoring the glory of the Lord there to Jerusalem and, and thereby Judah as well. And so in Nehemiah 5, what we see is this idea of leading through internal issues. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we examined uh, the outside opposition to leadership, that these men, Sambala and Tobiah, leading, being the, the, the foremost characters um, and, and those who would decry what was going on, uh, they, they stood up to them. Nehemiah led the people to stand up to them and, and to stand for what was right. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, we see a totally different story. Sometimes in life, we are our own worst enemies. It may be something as silly as hiding that Christmas present where your spouse or child will never find it, only to find out when it's time, you can't find it either. Or something as sinister as treating our family and friends in an ungodly way that sowed seeds of discord within a relationship. Sometimes we look in the mirror and we say with the old comic book, uh, old comic strip character Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. The people of Jerusalem under Nehemiah's leadership have taken on an incredible work and have accomplished much. In Nehemiah 3, you see the people and the work that they're doing. And in the face of outside opposition, they have rallied to the work of God once again. However, things don't stay trouble-free forever. They never do, do they? Tonight, we see the internal issues that arise within the work. And, And what we see here is that godliness cultivated by godly leaders and the people of God, is the answer to disobedient and dishonest living which causes strife amongst God's people. Whenever we live in a way that is anti-God, that is anti-what God has called us to do, there is going to be trouble. That's just the way it works, right? As, As the proverb says, the way of the transgressor is heart. That's the way God has set it up. Because he is the sovereign, and the way that he calls us to live is always the best way. And so whenever we go outside of that, it causes problems in, in the setting. I mean, obviously, we look around our world, and we see the, the sin causing issues all the time. But even within God's people, sin causes issues. And the answer to that is a godly culture that's cultivated by leadership and and spreads out into the people of God. And that's what Nehemiah does here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Most likely, just so you know, and I know we're all together on this, we're not going to make it through this message tonight, okay? There's a lot to unpack here. I know that's very surprising if you've been here for any number of time, right? Um, But we're going to unpack as much as we can here tonight in the time that we have. And what we see in Nehemiah 5, in the first five verses, 
is the outcry of the people. Look there with me. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we may buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And so what you find here is you turn the page, you go from from an incredible victory against these outside opposition to internal undermining that's going on within the work here. Nehemiah helped the people face that threat of outside opposition through prayer and preparation. And we looked at that, how, how they prayed first, how they prayed about everything, but yet they were prepared to meet whatever challenges laid ahead. Because when God's work is being done, there will come outside opposition. First and foremost, because Satan hates the work of God. And he will do anything he can in his power to oppose it. And so the people who were weary and afraid in the face of opposition had been turned back to the Lord by Nehemiah and they had found their confidence and their strength in God. They had found in God the ability to stand up against the enemy. And having faced that threat, having faced down the, the, the threat of military violence, you would be given to think that that's the end of the story. That they go on in their happy little Jerusalem world and build their little wall, which is not really little, right? They build their wall. But that is not how it goes. In fact, something really far greater threatens the work here in this chapter. Wherever there are people... There are always potentials for problems. That doesn't mean wherever there are people, there are always problems, right? Some pastors have been given to say, some pastors, not for this pastor. If it wasn't for all the people, ministry would be really great, okay? Why is there always a potential for problems wherever there are people? Because we are sinful. And even the one who's walked with God the longest is still a sinner saved by the grace of God. And we still go back into our sin and and don't walk with God consistently like we should. In fact, internal problems in a work of God are often a greater threat than that which is without. Because Satan, again, will stop at nothing to slow down the work of God. And if Satan cannot have the soul of a man, he would want to make that man as ineffective to God as possible. And as much as we allow him to do so, he will. And, and let me just, let me contextualize that, okay? I want you to think about what we may call the modern American church, okay? For, for 200 plus years here in the United States of America, how much outside persecution has the church in this country endured? I mean, our country was founded on the idea of religious liberty, Right? That, that there is a separation of church and state. So then, what causes so many churches every year, every week, to split apart and close their doors? Is it 
the local government coming in and evicting them from their churches? Is it radical groups militantly opposing and threatening the membership? What is it, then, that causes these things? Is it not internal conflicts and issues arising that are not dealt with in a biblical way? Is that not what threatens the church here in our context? Understandably, there are other countries where there are outside threats that threaten the church. But, but in our context today where we live, what causes it is internal issues. When individuals, groups, leadership, or corporate bodies do not handle problems or act in a godly, biblical way, problems ensue. And here in Nehemiah 5, we find just the case here. There is a tremendous outcry. It says in Nehemiah 5.1, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. There's an outcry, voices being raised, because there are issues amongst those who are working on the wall. Probably about a month or so into the work, those who are undertaking the work begin to raise their voices on issues that are affecting them and their families. And in fact, Even from verse 1, we get a peek at how desperate and how bad things are. Because there's this little phrase here. Uh, There was a great outcry of the people and their wives. And again, in our cultural context, we may not understand that. Say, well, of course, it's a team effort. Well, understand that in in ancient Israel, and especially in Nehemiah and Ezra, um, this idea of of wives or, or women, they kind of fade to the background, and so this mention of, the, of people and their wives highlights the seriousness and the distress that these people were in. Though, though the exiles had returned seemingly well off for the most part, and you can reference the book of Haggai for um, some, some things about that, how the people had decorated their homes and, and the way they had come. Here, they are now in distress and in trouble. In Jerusalem was surrounded by enemies that we saw that last time. They were cut off uh, from support. And verse 3 mentions that there's a famine going on in the land. And so now Nehemiah's project has taken precedence over everything else. I mean, you want to get this, he wants to get in and get the project done, understandably so, especially with what we saw last time in those who are are waiting to oppose the work. He is trying um, his best to, to get the people rallied around and working. So, in the meantime, the livelihood of the people has been put on hold. And so this results eventually in unmet needs. And as the people begin to cry out, the ugly truth of what's been going on in Israel begins to come out. Because at the end of verse 1, we see the people and their wives are crying out against who? Not against the enemy without, but against the Jewish brethren within. And there's some internal issues here. And we see here three different stages or, and represented by these three different groups of what's going on at Jerusalem at this time. The first group of people we see are the empty. In verse 2, for those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Very basically, these, children, these people have children to feed. 
They have a, a, a family to take care of, and they cannot do so. Because they've given up their own health and well-being to pitch in, in, in the work here. But the reserve only goes so far. Eventually, the foodstuffs are going to run out. Understand that, that Israel, by and large, is an agricultural community. Many people are involved in growing or raising their own food. And, and they may trade some of that, they may sell some of that, but they weren't really a merchant-based society. Now, some of them had come back as such, especially from captivity. They had learned these things. But you add that together with a famine and a large-scale building project that requires a group effort, and you have a recipe for unfed families. That's what's going to happen. You're requiring people to work because they need to be there. You're pulling them away from, from what they would normally do. The famine hits the land, and now you have the problems. And so these people begin to cry out because they don't have enough. But it, it just kind of snowballs from there. Because as they cry out, as they don't have the food, then they don't have the ability to do the other things that they need to do. And we meet the, the second group here in just a minute. But I want us, to, as we look at these three different groups, to see how they're connected. Because they're mentioned as three separate groups. But I really believe, as with many commentators, that one group leads to the next. You have people who can't eat, and it leads to people who, who are destitute, and leads to people who are enslaved. In reality, all of them are headed in the same direction. So not only do you have the empty, but you have the destitute. There were also, there were also some who said... We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we may buy grain because of the famine. So having no food to feed their families and living in a famine, there were those mortgaging their property in order to buy food. So their homes and their livelihood, that's their vineyards and their fields, I mean, that's how they made a living, were now being mortgaged or, or, or held as collateral in order to purchase the food that they so desperately needed. And they would need to pay back what they owed in order to avoid losing these things to the creditors. But there was one last factor at play, and I want to get this all together, and then we'll kind of consider the whole picture. And that led us to the third group, and that's the group that's enslaved. There were those who uh, were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh, this is the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. And if you remember back, we talked at the beginning um, of this whole study of Nehemiah, Persia had a very liberal stance on returning exiles to their land. That was the whole thing about Cyrus when he came in. Um, he was very generous in letting the people return. Even look at Artaxerxes allowing Nehemiah to return to oversee this product, project. However, if there was one thing Persia was known for, it was high taxes. They had learned that from the Babylonian Empire, and they had kept that. They levied these taxes on the provinces solely for the benefit of the king. You know, normally... How taxes are supposed to work, conceivably, right? I understand. We all have our own feelings about taxes, okay? Is that you take the money, and then you put that money back into the province to help with things. Well, they didn't do that very often. What, what, what happened is the money would go to the, to the empire, to the, to the ruler, and it would just kind of 
it would get stuck there, right? In fact, uh, Alexander the Great, I was reading one commentator, said he found just tons upon tons of gold and silver when he went through on his crusade as part of the Persian Empire um, where, where, where he overthrew that because they, just, they would keep all of this for the king. Now, no one likes taxes, but at least today there is usually something done at least somewhat consistently with some of the money, right? But that wasn't the case here. And these people who had no food... And, and had to mortgage their property to buy that food, now have no money to pay the tax. You see the snowball? Okay, you don't have, you don't have food to feed your family. So you, so you mortgage your property, all of your livelihood, to take care of that problem. Well, then you still have the taxes looming. And when the taxes come, then what do they have to To borrow money from fellow Jews in order to pay these taxes. Really, what do you have here? You have loan sharks going on in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem. You have people who are loaning out money, and they're beginning to charge, we're going to see here in a few minutes, interest, or what, what oftentimes is, is used in our, in our translation, the word usury, and we'll talk about that word here in a minute, um, on that, and it's causing issues because they're coming to collect on these debts. And when they're coming to collect on these debts, these people have nothing they can offer. They don't have their homes anymore. They don't have their, their fields. They don't own those things anymore. And so they, there's nothing they can do to, to fend that off. And so now they're being enslaved to their fellow Jews. Their, their, their children are being taken into slavery, and they can't buy them back. Now, understand, it was not a sin to loan out money to other people. God did not say, do not loan out money. It was, however, a problem It was wrong to enslave one another with the charging of interest in these situations. Look at God's law here in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. So God expected his people to treat one another with love and kindness, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not a call to a socialist society, but it is one that is built on helping one another and showing one another the love of Jesus Christ. No situation called for this attitude more than the current state of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, under such heavy circumstances, we should have found people helping one another, but you don't find that. You should have shown, have people uh, showing one another the love of God towards each other, but we don't find that. God's work is now threatened from within as the people cry out to Nehemiah for help. And we look at this, and we, we look at what happened in chapter 4, and all the external opposition, and you look at what happens in chapter 5, in the internal struggles, and you're going to look at at chapter 6 at more outside opposition, and this is the question that's going to come to our minds. How does such a project cause so many problems? And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't cause any of those problems. It exposes what's going on. The work of God, when, 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 when people are doing the work of God as God has called, it begins to expose the sinfulness of man. 
That's true in the outside opposition. That's true in the inside opposition. Working with others, doing God's work intensely reveals our hearts and our motives and who and what we are begins to come out in these circumstances. And Nehemiah, now seeing these things exposed, must now respond. He must find a way to help God's people act godly again. And so what we see is the rebuke that comes from leadership in verses 6 through 13. And it begins with really anger and consideration from Nehemiah. In verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them. And so the sin that that Nehemiah observes, the sin of of people charging interest to one another and enslaving their, their brothers, really angers him, and rightly so. Sin should make you angry. When you look around and see what sin does to people and God's creation and and, and what, what it has cost us and others, it should make you angry. It attacks God. We should, as we draw closer to God and increase in our love for God and His work, that should bring us to hate sin more and more. And what we have to understand is we can be angry at what sin does without straying into sinful actions with God's help. The term that's often used for this, and we've used it here before, people have coined the term righteous indignation, right? To, to, to be angry at sin. And that's not a bad thing. But by the same token, I, I would always caution us that what we often term righteous indignation isn't always such. Sometimes we use that word to justify feeling angry. Anger that results from my personal feelings of being inconvenienced, wronged, or exposed is not righteous indignation. The term tells us what it is consumed with. What is righteous indignation consumed with? The righteousness of God. Not my personal agenda. Not my feelings that got all mixed up in it. Not how I felt slighted or how I felt exposed, but because God has been wronged. And the righteousness of God has been attacked. And Nehemiah looked out and saw the people disobeying God. He heard the cry of the people and, how they, and he saw how they failed to obey the law of God. How they failed to show selfless love to one another. And this rightly made him angry. But his response shows us how this anger did not control him. Because in verse 7, what did he do? It says, after serious Thought. The idea is consideration. Anger that leads us to irrational, uncontrolled actions is not godly nor approved by God. Our response of sinful anger will only worsen the situation. Have you ever been approached by someone who is angry and you thought, well, I'll show them, I'll I'll anger them? How did that go? Why does Proverbs 15.1 say a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger? Right? I know this would never happen in your house, but when one sibling gets mad and the other sibling gets mad right back at him, right? That never happens here, right? Never. (laughs) Never in my house either. It escalates very quickly, doesn't it? 
I don't believe, I, I believe it's not a stretch to think Nehemiah sought God's wisdom in prayer here. Of course, we don't have that recorded, so I'm not here to tell you that's exactly what happened. But we know his character. We do know that he didn't react in anger, but motivated by zealousness of God's work, he calls out these rich ones for their sins against their Jewish brothers and sisters. We see him calling out wrong going into the rest of verse 7. Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? And they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a hundred of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Nehemiah comes out very strong in this situation. Sin must be dealt with, or else it will tear God's work apart. Sin has to be dealt with personally. Sometimes it has to be dealt with interpersonally. Sometimes it has to be dealt with corporately. But it has to be dealt with. And the severity of the situation will often inform the severity of the response. And the situation in Jerusalem is very dire because they are undoing the work of God. And so Nehemiah gives the problem, the charging of this interest. Or again, we have the word here, usury. And in this situation, this was wrong. And I love what one author said this. It really kind of helps us understand what's going on here. He said, usury isn't charging interest on a loan to offset the risk of the loan and the cost of foregoing other uses for the money. It's unjustly charging someone for a loan by exploiting them when they're in dire straits. That's the difference here. These people are, are broken. They have nothing. And here they are exacting this interest out of them to make the situation worse. There is an appropriate time and place for interest to be charged, and this is not it. Love should have won out, and it didn't. And so Nehemiah holds these ones accountable. He, he calls for a meeting of these who have committed these sins to bring these charges against them and to call them to action. And as Nehemiah begins to call out the wrong that's done here, we begin to learn that there has been a great redemption of the Jews. He said in verse 9, And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Apparently, when Nehemiah had come back, there had been some who were in these situations where they owed money, where they were basically owned by another nation, by, by outsiders. And so they had spent considerable money, it would seem, and, and time and effort to redeem, to buy back their brethren. Obviously, some of them had come from captivity in the Persian Empire. And so now that they have, they have been bought back only to now be enslaved once again. This time, however, they're being enslaved by their own countrymen. And Nehemiah 
questions them about these actions and shows them the awfulness of what they're doing. And the the perpetrators have nothing to offer. They have no answer to give. They are indeed guilty of what Nehemiah speaks of here. And what, what a horrible testimony it is. I mean, that's what's at stake here. The people of God were treating each other no better than those who were not God's. This is exactly what happens in our churches today that we've talked about at the beginning. We get so caught up in internal squabbles and interpersonal problems that we besmirch the name of God to outsiders. Problems and conflicts will arise in our lives with others. I'll say it again. Problems and conflicts will arise in your life with other people. It's going to happen. How you deal with those problems says a lot about your walk with God. How you deal with the conflict with another person says a lot about how you view how God says we're to deal with those things. And if we don't deal with those things in a biblical, godly way, there are consequences. Those consequences go far beyond an interpersonal conflict or a lost friendship. They branch out to the lives of others around us. They have an effect. God's people are called to live together for God's glory. And that's what Nehemiah is calling the people to do here. He's calling the people to live together for the glory of God. He's calling the people back to following the law of God. He's calling the people, and we'll see here in the next few verses, to to go beyond that, to show the love of God selflessly to others. And we'll go back, we'll come back to this next week because I want to make sure it has the time that it needs to, to really sink into our hearts. But let us be challenged with this thought. That there are going to be issues that come up in our lives. There are going to be problems that we have in our own hearts with sin. If you spend any amount of time in relationships with people, you're going to have relationship issues. And I'm really glad to see that there weren't a lot of wives elbowing their husbands, okay? Because that's one of those places, right? How we deal with it sets a precedent. How we deal with those things speaks of how we walk with the Lord. And tonight, in just a minute, we're, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. We have the opportunity as a church, as a body, a local body of Christ, in unity to proclaim the message of the gospel. Because that is what the Lord's Supper is. That is what this remembrance that we undertake is all about. It's about proclaiming the gospel of what Jesus Christ did in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That he came to save us from our sins. But oh, how we undermine that message when we allow our own sin and our mishandling of things to get in the way.
How many times has the message of the gospel been clouded by these mishandled things in our own lives? And you've probably seen it. Some of you may have been in churches like that. Or you've known someone who's been in churches. And I'm not here to throw stones at other churches. Okay, I'm not here to do that. But it's a, it is a, a stern warning to our own lives. That, that if we have issues with others, within our local context, that we deal with those things in a biblical way. 